0: Today on Vital Voices, we begin 2024 with a look at the concept of self-care and some ideas on how to feel well as we face the new year. Our guest is Dr. Diana Morland, a clinical psychologist at East Tennessee State University. Dr. Diana Morland, welcome to Vital Voices.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: One of your many research interests is the topic of self-care. Before we get into what self-care means and how important it is this particular time of the year, give me a broad general definition in psychological terms of what self-care really is.
1: Absolutely. Fred, self-care is something a lot of people are talking about right now. And so I love to slow down and think about what it really means. And there's many definitions. When I think about self-care, I think about the ways that we're taking care of ourselves in our mind, body, and spirit. And what wellness means to me is different than what wellness will mean to you. And so part of self-care is really knowing what we need to be well, what we need to feel well physically, what we need to feel well in our relationships and in our communities, and what we need to feel well in our sense of connectedness to something bigger than ourselves.
0: Is this a new way of thinking about mental health?
1: Oh, yes and no. I think self-care is a concept that folks have been talking about for a while now. But I think what's changing in mental health is the recognition that our our mind and body are so interconnected. In the past, folks used to think you had physical health, you'd go to your primary care doctor for, and that you had mental health, and you'd go to a, a shrink is what people would think, right, as a, a therapist. Um, and now what the science is really showing is that our mental health and physical health are are interconnected. They're one in the same. Our minds and bodies are all a part of us. Um, and so there's been a shift in thinking about self care from something we just kind of get to do as a luxury. Um, I think a lot of people hear self care and they think bubble bath or they think a trip to the spa. <laughs> um, and there's a there's a newer way of thinking about self-care that is not something that we necessarily do or buy, but really something that we practice. It's a it's a regular daily practice of being connected with ourselves, knowing what we need to be well and really advocating for the things we need to feel well in in our bodies and our minds.
0: It's a mindset, it's an attitude rather than a checklist.
1: Exactly. It's it's it is a mindset and it's It's really necessary for lifelong physical and mental health. It really should not be viewed as a luxury or a privilege that only a few folks get to practice if they've got time and money.
0: On a personal level, you are the mother of four-and-a-half-year-old twins. I suppose self-care, in large part, is defined by your role in life as a caregiver, as a parent, as a spouse.
1: Yes, yeah. The, the twins keep me busy. I've never needed self-care more than I've needed it now, or at least time is the most precious resource right now because I spend... You know, from the moment I wake up, I'm taking care of those twins and then I go to work and then I come home and I take care of the twins. So if I'm not intentional to center self-care as a part of my daily practice, it's very easy to move through my day taking care of everyone else and ignoring what I need to be well. And so at the very basic, uh, we think about kind of the basic foundations of physical health, which is going to be sleep, sleep diet and exercise Um, and so those kind of foundational pieces of am i getting enough sleep am i being intentional about what i'm putting into my body am i drinking enough water am i finding ways to move my body um, that work for my schedule that work for what i need to feel well and so those kind of physical parts are foundational but then there's there's more to it there's really a mindset of believing that i Deserve to feel well, and I deserve to take time to take care of myself, and that can feel very countercultural, depending on how you've been raised. And as a woman, being raised in the U.S., there's a lot of messages around um, putting others' needs first, um, really valuing kind of a selflessness of taking care of others. And I'm a, I'm a psychologist, so I love taking care of others. I love helping others. It's, it's a big part of who I am and what motivates me. Um, and I've just really realized in the past few years of being a psychologist and a mother that I have to take care of myself if I want to be able to take care of others.
0: You're taking care of four-and-a-half-year-old boys The principle is the same if you are, let's say, a caregiver for an elderly parent or grandparent.
1: Yes, caregiving is caregiving. Caregiving is how we give our our energy our physical energy and our mental energy to to take care of someone else or something else um that could be a little one an older one a same-aged one who just needs more help and support and so that that kind of giving of self that giving of my mind of my thoughts of my emotions of my energy right now my four and a half year olds are in that stage where they've got really big feelings so it's really common, right, for them to have tantrums and to have these emotional meltdowns. And for my kiddos to be able to find ways to calm those feelings, they need a caregiver who is calm and regulated. And so I'm giving my emotional resources to stay calm when they can't. And and there's many stories like that, regardless if you're a parent or not, there's many ways that that we humans take care of other humans. It's a beautiful thing to be able to take care of each other and to be in community and to be in relationship. And it is something that drains our physical and mental resources and self-care is a way to recharge those resources within us so that we can keep sustaining the work of being good humans.
0: You are a graduate of the College of William and Mary in Virginia and hold a PhD from the University of Georgia As I mentioned, you have a lot of research interests. Where in your academic training and education did self-care become a topic of study?
1: Oh, I love that question, Fred. Not until I got here at ETSU. So I was really focused on mental health. How do we understand how mental illness develops in children and how do we work to prevent it? And so I spent most of my formal educational years really studying what we call psychopathology or mental illness, things like depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, studying how they come to be, how we treat them, how we help people get better. And then with kiddos, how we prevent it from happening in the first place. And really, so much of prevention is working with parents and caregivers and helping parents and caregivers who have been through hard things themselves, who are struggling with mental illness themselves, get the help they need so that they can be healthy and regulated and kind, calm, compassionate adults to raise the next generation of children. And so in that kind of generational transmission of risk from an adult that's struggling with addiction or mental health struggles or trauma um, than having a child, I really recognize if we aren't taking time to take care of those caregivers, those parents, we can't expect them to be able to raise healthy and happy kiddos. And so I really was on postdoc at University of Michigan where I got to specialize in something called infant mental health, um, which is really early prevention and early intervention work. How do we help take care of the people taking care of little ones to prevent mental illness from developing in the first place. At ETSU, um, I came here and was really able to get into the workforce of folks in the infant and early childhood mental health workforce. So these are folks that go out into homes and go out into communities and take care of families that are struggling. But I was doing trainings and providing supervision and consultation to these workers who are going out into these homes working with these families and they were so burnt out they this was starting in the pandemic right i was starting to study just the the mental health of the workforce taking care of the families and kiddos in our state and what i saw was they're experiencing higher levels of depression and anxiety than the general population higher levels of burnout that that sense of i'm exhausted by my work i no longer feel like i'm achieving or accomplishing anything in my work and i don't know if i can keep doing this work and then what we see is a lot of folks quit or um, switch jobs, and then these relationships that have formed with families and communities are lost. And so it was really in this place of the pandemic and seeing the helpers suffering and struggling that I wanted to better understand how do we take care of the helpers so that we can take better care of the families, so they can take better care of the kiddos.
0: Let's go back to a term you used, infant mental health. That's a phrase you rarely hear, and as you are counseling parents in your practice, what do you tell them about nurturing good mental health in, in people that young?
1: I love this question. Infant mental health is really just understanding that children develop in the context of relationships. A baby develops, human babies especially, develop in the context of a caregiving relationship. And we know now from decades of neuroscience that little ones need safe, stable, and nurturing relationships to really build the architecture of their brains to then grow up and be happy and healthy and um, well-functioning adults that can contribute to society. And what happens during the first three years of a child's life lays the foundation for their neural architecture for the the rest of their life. And so that's why there's so much emphasis and why I'm such a big believer in early intervention and prevention which allows us to really identify families and young children who may be at risk for kind of not having safe stable and nurturing relationships if your caregiver is struggling with addiction it's really hard for that caregiver to be able to respond consistently to a baby's needs if a caregiver is struggling with depression it's really hard to be able to meet those baby's needs and um, I want to hold a lot of compassion for these caregivers because a lot of times these caregivers were not, did not have safe, stable, and nurturing relationships themselves when they were growing up. We know that mental illness and adverse childhood experiences and addiction run in families. And so you've got these parents, these caregivers trying their best to give a little one what they need, but we can't give a child an experience we've never been given. And so infant mental health is really an entire workforce of folks committed to promoting healthy relationships and understanding that children develop and learn in the context of relationships, culture, and community.
0: Let's go back to the general topic of self-care. One of the reasons I invited you to be on the program at this particular time is the fact that this is the first full weekend of the new year, 2024. Mm -hmm. What is it about a new year, the post-holiday period, that makes self-care often very difficult for us.
1: I think we have unrealistic expectations. Change takes time. Habits are hard to build and cultivate, and A lot of folks want to enter the new year with these really lofty and ambitious New Year's resolutions. And what usually happens is they feel motivated and they have some success, but then life happens. Um, They're tired, they get sick, they're taking care of others, they've got work to do. Um, we tend to fall back to old habits, and then people feel guilty and they feel bad that they didn't make their resolutions. So I'm actually not a big fan of New Year's resolutions. Right. I'm a, a, a bigger believer in New Year's reflections and intentions. So using the New Year as a time to slow down and reflect on the previous year, what did I learn from this past year? How did I grow? In what ways, I'm a big believer in values. What are my values? And am I Am I living consistently with my values? If I value family and I look back on 2023, which decisions did I make that that honored my value of being with my family? And which decisions did I make that maybe did not honor that and moved me farther away from from my family? And so using the new year as a time to reflect on, on what am I valuing? How am I doing in moving toward those values? And what do I want to do differently? But with the what do I want to do differently – The the intention being movement toward values, and again, I said family is a value, but there's many values. We can value our faith or spirituality or religion. We can value spending time in nature. We can value achievements. We can value physical health and wellness. It's kind of getting clear on what are my main values. And how can I make small steps every day to move closer to living in alignment with those values?
0: Well said, good advice. Dr. Diana Moreland, thank you so much for joining us for Vital Voices.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Our guest today has been Dr. Diana Morland, a clinical psychologist at East Tennessee State University. For Vital Voices, I'm Fred Sossman.